0: He's one of my favorite people in the game of golf. And we've had the delight uh, to speak with him on the fairways of life show for many years. I've also had the pleasure the honor of working with him on the television side. It's an experience, frankly, that I will never forget. It was uh, the first time was at the U S open at congressional and the wisdom that he imparts, the experience, the knowledge It is unparalleled. It is a mark on the game of golf that will last forever because of who this man is. Dave Stockton won 25 times as a professional golfer, 10 of those on the PGA Tour, including two major championships, the 1970 PGA Championship and the 1976 PGA Championship. He won 14 times on the Champions Tour. He played in 54 major championships all told and he finished in the top 10 eight times including five top fives and two other times he was runner-up at the 1974 masters and at the 1978 u.s open and that is of course in addition to his wins on the pga tour champions he was a leading money winner in 1993 and in 1994 and also in 1993 he was the player of the year he played on two Ryder Cup teams, the 1971 Ryder Cup team and the 1977 Ryder Cup team. Of course, he was the winning captain of the famed 1991 Ryder Cup, which I'm looking forward to revisiting today as well. He has, in his latter stages of his career, become recognized as a putting guru. Not only is it a unique field that he went into, because of his particular expertise and perspective. And I'm sure he'll share with us how that connects him to his father. And interestingly enough, with a smile on his face, it also connects him to his sons in the business as well. Absolutely remarkable. And when, you all, when it's all said and done, you know, we, we talk to these veteran campaigners. And when you start to hear what they did in terms of events played, Because every one of these events is a week away. It's on the road. He played in 599 PGA Tour events and 436 PGA Tour champions events. Let that sink in for a second as well as we allow the wisdom and perspective of the unique Dave Stockton to sink in over the time that lies before us. Dave, how have you been? Thank you for joining us.
1: Matt, great to, great to listen to you. Uh, that was a hell of an introduction. I don't know if we have anything left to talk about.
0: <laughs> True. How are you getting along through this, this crazy virus? What's going on with the family, and where, where, are you, where are you staying and keeping?
1: Well, we're at home in Redlands. I'm not moving. I've, uh, I don't like being in the target group, but it's 78, and after having a blood clot in 09, I've got only one lung, so I'm, I'm trying to hunker down as best I can and uh so far so good david david and of course his family's down in carlsbad and uh they're hunkered down ronnie's here and here with us in redlands but uh you know we don't see him we're just we're just isolated and trying to be trying to do the right thing
0: yeah it's crazy and it's scary and we wish you guys obviously the very best with with everybody you guys in the grandkids and everyone else too that goes along with it so i want i I thought it would be fun to have you on the program and kind of revisit a couple of different things through your storied career uh you know i in all the times and all the communications that we have had through through the various mediums i don't think i've ever asked you the question of when you look back on your career as an individual not Ryder cups etc but as an individual with the 10 victories that you had on the pga tour majors whatever it is is there one win that stands out to dave stockton the most when you look back and reflect that causes you to smile
1: yeah well uh the first major the pga at southern hills where i went head to head against arnold palmer uh you know if he wins he gets the grand slam uh if i win i get my first major kathy's eight months pregnant i'm gonna have ronnie exactly 30 days after after this finishes and uh it was the one, one major that I actually did win on the on the regular tour, the second one at Congressional, uh, which you alluded to. Uh, there had to be 20 people that could have shot themselves because they should have won it rather than me, but that's another story. But this, the Southern Hills one is very, very special. And uh, In fact, I've given them the replica I have of the Watermaker Trophy, and they've created a a, a really nice display there. I was supposed to, in about a month, go down there and, and dedicated, but obviously that's on hold. But, uh, no, we have really good memories of, of our times around Southern Hills.
0: All right, let's talk about Southern Hills then for a moment. In the opening round in 1970, uh, not surprising to anybody, Jack Nicholas shared a piece of lead at two under par. Uh, young Johnny Miller also shot a 68 at two under par. Where were you? What were you thinking? And what, just after that round one, what thoughts were going through your head?
1: Well it I just I was pacing myself. You never know in majors what somebody's gonna shoot. I mean I've shot myself in the foot a couple of times thinking, you know, I that bit raw I shoot sixty nine in an open the first round and think I've killed it and, and again, I think it was I know it was Nicholas, but I'm not sure if Miller was the second one, but they shot sixty threes in the afternoon. Here I was really proud of a sixty nine and you know, it really was not as good as it could have been. If I'd have known a 63 was out there, I would have played differently, I think. But uh, the 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 background for Southern Hills is the fact I just finished reading Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, which was boring as heck to read, but I took two things out of it. One of it was that you had to be aggressive when you played, and two, you had to visualize ahead of time what you wanted to accomplish, be it in life or, you know, in, in my case, golf. And so when I played my practice round on Monday and I came up 18, uh, I was one of the first ones out about 7 o'clock, and uh, I came up to 18, and I visualized the 20,000 people that were going to be sitting behind the 18th green when I came in as the winner on 18, on Monday. So I can't tell you much. Thursday was like a horse race. It's a, a mile long, and you're only, you're only a quarter of a mile into it, so I didn't give much thought to it. Uh, I gave a lot of thought to it after the second round when I shot 66 and the papers came out with the fact that an unknown now leaves the PGA. And that ticked me off. Uh, <laughs> it just, you know, I'd won four times, the, the, in two times in 67, two times in 68, didn't win in 69, but, you know, I didn't think, at least I was known in my own household. But it, it it's like locker room material. It spurred me on. I'll prove to them that I'm not an unknown, you know. But, uh, yeah. but to answer your question, the first round was just a, That was fine. I got my feet wet. Nothing spectacular, but then I opened it up, obviously, in the second round.
0: Now, a couple of questions with what you were talking about. What prompted you to read, in essence, a self-help book? Is it safe to call it that? But what prompted you to do that to begin with? Was that something, David, that you had been doing with regularity?
1: No. It's just something my dad suggested I read. And my dad was my only instructor, and... You know, in Mike golf game, as we've talked about, you know, I didn't necessarily beat you physically, but generally I beat you mentally. And he thought, and it, it was a terribly hard book to read. I mean, it just, it, to me, it was boring. I finally, the only way I could get through it was to yellow line it so I could, you know, I could read the entire book in 20 minutes after I, I highlighted what I thought was the things that, that, it, that it, it, you know, meant the most to me. And uh, it worked. It was it was unbelievable. Uh there were about 40,000 people behind the 18th green instead of 20. But of course that had the fact that I was playing with Arnold and he was supposed to get the grand slam on Sunday.
0: Now, and I can't wait to talk to you in some detail about when we get to Sunday in this conversation as well, but I want to, I want to ask you about this visualization that you were doing of seeing the, from, from seeing it early in the morning in a practice round on Monday to seeing it absolutely packed to the gills with people on Sunday afternoon, that vision was it a conscious effort for you to get ready for what will be to train your mind and 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 hopefully to gain that the universe is going to give you what you need to be there? Or was this some other kind of vision that came to you otherwise? No,
1: I just had the feeling that I'm setting on this thing, and I've, I was playing decent, uh, and I just felt that I was going to win. My practice rounds were all... You know, I, w- I was looking at like, okay, this is how I play this hole. This is what I'm going to do depend, no matter what the situation is. And uh, I kind of, until the, until the Sunday round, I I, I played very, not conservative, because, uh, you know, the one thing I was supposed to be aggressive, but I, w- but I was really focused in on not letting any good or bad shots affect me. And, you know, gosh knows I hit enough bad shots. So I, I stayed very even keel. And just trusted the fact at the end I was going to walk away winning this thing. Didn't put any undue pressure on myself, that sort of thing.
0: All right, so we come into that Sunday morning at Southern Hills at the 1970 PGA Championship. Dave Stockton has a three shot lead over Raymond Floyd. Arnold Palmer is five shots behind you. Can you now take us back through spin back the years here and talk to us about what happened in that final round, what knowledge you had in terms of what other players were doing and how to play itself out at the end when there was 40,000 surrounding that green? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I mean, I, I Don, January, years before, had helped me out by telling me as we were teeing off in 66 on the first hole at uh uh, Rancho Park in, in L.A. Uh, Palmer had the lead. He, January, was third, and I was fifth, and we got paired together in the last round. I've been out there two years. I've never met Arnold, uh, mainly because I was never there on the weekend. and So I was introduced to him on the first tee, and obviously I'm nervous as heck, and we all tee off, and the balls all go straight. I'm 30 yards behind him, and basically I hear this voice say, son, son, and I stop, and it's January. And he proceeded the next two minutes to explain to me that I had a problem. And he explained, my problem is that if I go the pace that Arnold's going, Arnold's already got us by 90 yards. That since I'm 30 yards behind and I'm never going to drive as far as they do anyway, I'm always going to be hitting first. That in my normal pace would be to go very fast. And he said, that's fine. You can go fast, but if you go fast, you're going to see me walking up your backside this entire day. And I'm thinking, okay. He says, well, if you don't, if you don't go his pace, if you walk my pace. I can't tell you exactly what he said, but it was the fact that Arnold would not have that great a day because he'd have to wait for me. Because, you know, my, my deal is I always went fast because I was the first to hit, and then I could relax, you know, the rest of the way in because, it, you mm-hmm. know, I would probably other guys hit. But at any rate, this day I was I was walking side to side. I was doing all this stuff to slow down. On the fourth hole, Kathy <laughs> was, what, asked me what in the heck I'm doing, and I explained to what Mr. January said cause I never thought the pace that you played Really affected, you know. I get irritated by having slow players play with me. I don't mind fast players because I can go as fast as I want. But at any rate, uh, and I mean, she says that's really that makes sense. I said I know it, so I'll fast forward to number four, to number eighteen. I started the day seven shots behind Arnold. I'm not too behind him, but I don't know what I'm shooting. I honestly don't. I am so tired. I walked 20 miles because I'm kind of going sideways and slow because I can't walk as slow as January, right? So it's Southern Hills. Kathy's in the clubhouse because she's eight months pregnant. And it was very difficult if you compare Rancho Park in February in L.A. to August in Tulsa with 100% humidity and 90-degree temperatures. And, you know, here I am trying to go side to side. And I just, you know, January is my hero because he came out of an era where you'd needle a lot of people. But for whatever reason, he saw me. He, he literally... You know, gave me something that, that changed my life because I, you know, I, I I started out and Gatorade had just been invented in the, in '70, and I'm drinking a complete can of this every three holes, never using the restroom because you're sweating everything out of you. And the round for me started on five, and I three-putted on five, and this guy in the crowd yelled, "You got him now, Arnold!" And I thought to myself, "Huh." I went birdie two on six, I went eagle two on seven, and eight, the hard part three, I hit a three-wood and couldn't get the green, I ended up double bogeying it, and then I hit it in the bunker on off number, off number nine, under a tree, I hit it a foot from the hole and birdied it, so I went birdie, eagle, double bogey, birdie, and I had a seven-shot lead. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't think Arnold's having as good a day as he expected, and what I remember about the backside was just playing it as fast as I could play it, because... You know, I'd visualize I was going to win, and darn it, if I wasn't going to do it.
0: Amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing. When it was all said and done, uh, not that I expect anything dramatic here, other than a handshake and a a good job. Did you talk to Arnold Palmer about it at all?
1: Well, we discussed it. I I just told him I I enjoyed the experience with him. Uh, He was, you know, he was fighting tooth and nail, and I was trying to help him out. I hit the water on 13, and... Did my normal my normal stuff, you know, but made it hell of an up and down. Just make a bogey, and you know, of course, the crowd's still rooting for Arnold to come come behind. And I made sure. about, I I don't know fifteen twelve footer, I'd say, or maybe slightly longer on on uh, seventeen to save par, which gave me a three shot lead going to eighteen. And eighteen at Southern Hills is a hard hole for me, dog leg to the right. And I was so pumped up after made this butt. I knocked this thing 30 yards past Arnold off the tee. It was the first time I hit the fairway on 18 all, all, you know, all week. And Arnold just looked at me and he just gave me a thumbs up because he knew he was dead. And I got down where, and this has the giant bunker in front of the green where Hubert almost lost the Open in 77 there, 77 or 8, and uh, no, it would have been 77. And I. Arnold hits it on the front edge of the green, and I had 165, 70 yards. I was down there a mile, and I hit 9-iron, sandwich. Didn't even wow. try to knock it on the green. Knocked on the green, and same thing, gave me thumbs up again because he knew he was, you know, toast. But yeah. It, it, it was, it, 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 that's why I say it was such a thrill for me because I kind of put everything together. Kathy, you know, it was really tough with her being pregnant and not being able to be out there, but at least she was still there. Um uh, and it just it was it was quite a thing. And Arnold, uh, obviously was always the nicest guy. Uh he was difficult to play with because the one thing he would love to do, it didn't help bad putters because he would like to you know, if he putted it you always put it out when you play with Arnold. You did not mark because as soon as soon as you mark and he knocked it in, the gallery was gone. Yeah. And it wasn't quietly, you know. Mm-hmm. You always put it out. You just learn these little things. And, and Arnold that was he just kinda of smile at you. And it was you know, you learn what to do. And wow. it was to me, it was it was uh and Murphy tied for second I guess with with Arnold, but I mean I don't even remember him playing in the tournament. Uh I mean I was just so focused that I was gonna win this thing and I just all I had to do was go through seventy holes, eighteen holes at a time. And it it was uh it was an interesting week that changed our it changed our, our life from the point of view. Now I had a 10-year exemption. Oh, I can tell you the other stupid thing that I did. I was one of these hot-headed younger kids of 27 can be called young, and we passed the deal that you had no more lifetime exemptions from winning the PGA because, you know, so certain people, Jerry Barber being one of them, that they got a lifetime win, and they just played. You didn't make an earthy shot 80, he played. Mm-hmm. And so... I I win the tournament and I'm going. This is great. I got a ten-year exemption. But if I'd have kept my mouth shut, I would have had a lifetime exemption. You know. And I, in fact, when I won in '76, I said, "Well, now can I can I add on? You know, an extra ten or something? Well, what does that do? No, I get I get a six-year exemption. Is what I get for what <laughs> <laughs> So I wasn't too smart in that regard, but it was—it was a good rule to implement. Ten years, you can do a lot with ten years, and uh, you know, it just—it it meant a great deal because I wasn't one of the guys who went out there, like Arnold or Jack or any of these—the Watson or whoever you might want to think about, Johnny Miller. I mean, they their games were predicated around the majors, and I just I treated every golf every major the same. I enjoyed the PGA and the Masters more than I did the Open or the British Open. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the PGA, you know, set up good for me. You you could be aggressive where it doesn't really pay you to be aggressive in the U.S. Open. Uh, mm-hmm. Too much penalty. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that's why I've had a good record in the PGA.
0: Well, you mentioned the Masters. And before we go to your, your second major championship at that uh, PGA championship once again, I, I want to ask you about that. 1974 masters you went into the final round of the 1974 masters on nine under par at the time you had a one-shot lead over jim colbert and gary player who were both obviously the two that were behind you then uh, another shot adrift was bobby nichols and phil was rogers
1: Shot i remember two but there's only one
0: yeah, it was nine under par against eight under par for those two guys, and Nichols and Rogers at seven, Irwin and Weiskopf at six under, Frank Beard was five under, Hubert Green and Jack Nicklaus were four under par. So, what do you remember from that final round in terms of trying to, I assume, kind of channel the same zone that you had in your 1970 PGA Championship win?
1: Uh, well, I just made a, one crucial metal mistake. Uh, the, uh, I always enjoyed playing the Masters. I had a very good record there, although I was a short hitter. I, I would go nuts on the par fives because I'm not a long hitter. I can remember vividly the first time I could get to 15 and 2, I had like 220, and I know I can hit my 3 with that far. I said, okay, I can do this. Well, I hit it 220, all right. It one bounced into the lake on 16. Oh. That, I found out, is not a place you want to hit it on 15. And I just, but I mean, I, I you know they're in short irons. I mean, uh, so it it is something I had to play. I mean, I I had almost as many eagles on par fours there as I did on par fives, just because you know I'm a fairly good accurate iron player. But yeah. after three rounds, it, the greens were slow in seventy four, and basically I uh, felt like. Uh, as I'm playing the third round, I said, you know, i got to put some lead tape on the back of my Ray Cook putter because it's just, you know, it, it, it's a fraction of light. If I put a little weight on it'll be perfect. And, and the interview, of course, it's getting near dark, and we finished the interview. I was in there for probably 45 minutes to an hour answering anybody that wanted, you know, stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I am on the third hole on Sunday and realized I didn't put any lead tape on the putter. And... I just there. There was a small thing that nobody knows about, but I hit 18. I had nine greens the front side, and when I three putted number nine, I went from from one up to one down. when player birdied it, and I bogeyed it. And I mean, I just yeah, I I kept going along, and I get to pre mentioned 13, and I pulled my tee shot, but I killed it. And I've got 178 yards, 180 yards to the pin, and player is up in the, in the pine straw, nowhere near where Mickelson was, and I'm still one shot behind. We both part 11, we both parred 12, and he pulls out of wood. I'm going, there is no way he can get over the water hazard, and I can't believe he's doing this. And he pulls the second shot because that up above, your lies above your feet. Lands short in the fairway, lands on the bridge, and bounces in the left bunker. No, and I'm going. You got to be kidding me! I mean, he would have been 15 yards short of carrying. It, and I've asked him about it. and He said, "No, no, no. I. It's just one of. The, that's what I was trying to do." And I'm going, "Okay, sure, you were." <laughs> it, I hit four four ironed about 15 foot, but it didn't come off. Again, it's not. It wasn't fast that year, and the ball stayed up above it. The, the pin was in its typical low right position, about middle of the green, and I'm 15 foot just above it. And player blasts out of the bunker about 14 feet. He's just inside me in three, and I got this eagle putt. I left it one inch short in the heart. I'm going, there's no way going down that hill you can leave it short. And we go along, we parred 14, we parred 15, and 16. I had a really, really good shot right behind the hole about 10 feet. And it's one of the few putts that when I when I rolled it, I thought, okay, a foot in the hole, it's in the hole. And all of a sudden, it stopped breaking and it went right over the edge. Only went three or four inches behind the hole, but it didn't go where I wanted to. And I'm still one behind the whole deal. And that's where players stuffed it on 17. A foot makes he makes birdie. So now I'm two down. I still think I'm going to win it. And I put it where <laughs> history repeats itself because. Player, player hits first, and he hits it on the back edge of the putting green. I mean, the pin's down front. He's on a foot on the back of the green, and I fan it in the right trap where Arnold bladed it over the green to lose to player when yeah. player won the first time, and I was—I think it was the first time, but I, but at any rate, he but he did that. So I get in this bunker and I'm going, okay, let's see. All right, if I hold this, that means he's got a two putt. Let's see how he does and. I hit this thing and it horseshoed on me. And, of course, he two putts and he wins by two shots. And, wow. You know, it, it was it was an interesting year for the listeners. You talk about how times change. I won the L.A. Open in 74 in February, beating Sam Snead by birdie in 18 at Riviera. And then had the Masters, second the Masters. And then, I, then I go head-to-head, Snead's leading at Quad Cities. And I shoot 64 in the last round and beat him by one. And then we go to Sammy Davis Hartford, where I got a call from President Ford when I won. That was the first call of sitting president ever called a golfer after a, after a tournament. And so those are my three wins and the second at the masters and my grand total that I made that year was $160,000. Yeah. And it, you know, it's in this day and age, who's, you know, 5 million, six million, whatever, you know. But in those days, that's just an absolute fortune. But, it, but I just look back on that and go, what a year I had, you know, especially if I could have pulled the Masters off. But, uh, no, it, it was a positive thing. That's the one tournament, two tournaments I would have liked to have won. I would have liked to have won the, the, uh, the Masters only to go back there. It's such a special place. And the other one, of course, I never went at was Pebble Beach. And I would loved the same reason. I'd like nothing better to go on the Monterey Peninsula. And uh, I just didn't happen to do it.
0: You know, one thing that one can draw from those stories, too, though, Dave Stockton, is that, you know, you're talking about you, you've invoked the names of Arnold Palmer, Gary Player. Obviously, Jack Nicklaus was in the mix, Sam Snead. You played at a time that I like to call when Giants roamed and your time also bridged that because you were a young man while some of these legends were still playing, obviously competitive and still contending in big tournaments and majors, right up until when uh, the Tom Watsons came along and the Johnny Millers came along. It's really a remarkable period in which your professional playing career bridged.
1: Well, it is. It really is because I was probably one of the few, and of course it got right after mine, You started getting these guys like Phil Mickelson. I mean, he doesn't look like he's built like a golfer. Neither does Ernie Els. I mean, most of the golfers. In fact, when I my first time in the Grand Slam of Golf, I mean, the four guys that that won the majors that year were Tony Jacklin, Casper, and Nicholas. I'm an inch taller than any of those guys at 5'11". Yeah. So I mean, times change. I can throw Hogan in the mix for you. You want me to do that? Yes. (laughs) Uh. That was this was gonna. This is my first win. Colonial again. Hogan tally, <laughs> and I play well at Greensboro till I till I open with a double on Sunday and Archer beats me, and uh, I finish third. But I get the last invitation, a champion's choice. Lou Graham and I, and I get in the tournament, and I shoot sixty-five, which ties the course record in the first round. Sixty-six in the second round, which beats Hogan's record by four shots, and for, for thirty-six. And he walks right by me that afternoon, and never says a word. So I go out the next day, and at one point I had close to a ten-shot lead early in the round. But I'm playing with Gardner Dickinson, who was obviously a big fan of Hogan. Mm. And let's just put it this way: I wouldn't say he slowed play me, but we got caught on the 16th tee in a rain delay, and the golf course was empty in front of us. Three complete wow. holes. Yeah, yeah. So my lead's completely gone. I shoot 74. And I'm sitting in front of my locker, getting my mind back where I'm tied with Weisskopf now. Hogan's one or two shots behind us. And I hear this voice, where's Dave Stockton's locker? Well, here around the corner Because Mr. Hogan. He walks up to me and I stand up and shake hands. He says, Dave, I want to congratulate you. I know yesterday you probably thought I was going to say something to you, but you know everybody was congratulating. But I just want to let you know that you just got your bad round out of the way. You put yourself together. You win this thing. And I thought to myself, that is unbelievable. Yeah. Just, I mean, for him to say that, and he obviously meant it. And after winning that, of course, every year I'd go back and I'd be in the champions, you know, the Pro-Am dinner and the, the past champions were there. And he and Valerie were so nice. And David was a champion's choice junior. And his proudest memory is having Ben Hogan standing between he and I at the, at the champion's dinner there at Colonial. And ben, ben wrote him a very nice letter, and it's just you know it's. But you're right, Matt. That's we, we did bridge an interesting time. I mean, I he go back and forth. I sat I sat at the master and having lunch, and who sits down to have lunch with me? Byron Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked him. I said, I'm not. A, I don't know stats like you do, Matt. But at any rate, I said. I said, I know in '45 you won 11 in a row. He says, "Yeah, I entered 23 tournaments. I won 18 or 19 or something, you know, some ungodly number." And I said, "How? What were you? What were you thinking?" And he got this smile on his face. He said, "Well, I can tell you. <laughs> I was practicing in West Texas for the West Coast swing, and I found something in my swing, and that was the only swing thought I used for the entire year. And I thought to myself." Joe Public, who has six different swing thoughts every other week, and if you asked him what he was thinking about the previous month, he couldn't remember because he's already moved on to something he's seen or heard or, you know, this sort of thing. And for Byron, it was just completely easy. I mean, I'm sitting there just stunned that he said that.
0: (sighs) Amazing stuff. Dave Stockton is our guest recounting, I mean, literally the game's history. It's amazing to think the names that not only that, because it's 78 years young to think that you competed against these guys when they still were able to play and hit shots. I mean, Ben Hogan, it was it was at the very end of his competitive career, but he was still playing at Colonial. And to be hanging out and be friends with Byron Nelson, to be competing at and beating multiple times uh, Sam Snead, obviously Arnold Palmer, a uh, player got you at that 74, uh, Masters, it's it's incredible stuff. I mean, literally got a a chill up my spine as you were telling the story with, with Ben Hogan when he came around the corner and he spoke to you. But I did want to ask you, too, about 1976. Now, when you win your second major championship, that major championship was interesting as well on a number of different levels. What do you remember in terms of 1976 and how and why everything clicked for you there and then?
1: I have no idea why it clicked for me, because I had no intention of winning the tournament. Uh, got there. with We had our, our nanny with us, uh, Vicki Bevins from, from Iowa, and Kathy and I and the two boys. And we spent all day Monday at the White House, saw every room in the White House, went all over the place. I played, I think, 18 holes on Tuesday, which I thought that was the longest golf course I've ever seen. I <laughs> Any easy holes. Um uh, And I went and then I played nine holes on Wednesday. And I couldn't even tell you any of the scores I shot. But I can tell you on the Sunday we tee off and I played five holes. And I was three under after five. Three Mm -hmm. over after five, excuse me. Three over after five. And they rained the entire round out, which is unusual to rain an entire round out. Um, So we had to start over again on Monday. Well, I had American Airlines outing. And near congressional on Monday, and of course, you know, can't can't give that I can't can't give that up. But for the PGA, obviously, you're going to keep playing. Well, the same five holes, starting on on Monday morning, I'm now two under, so I've gained five strokes. Wow. Yeah, in five holes, and so I battle along. I mean, I just I played so brilliantly. The only fairway with a driver I hit on the backside was, and I'm hitting driver every time because I you know I need to get out there. Was mm-hmm. 11. I hit the 11th fairway, and that was the last fairway I hit till I hit 18 when I used a three wood just because I was getting tired of getting killed by the rough. And then after I hit the three wood on 18, because I had a, I had the, <laughs> I had the the one shot lead in 16. We didn't play the hole they play now. This tenth, the little par three. Mm-hmm. Tenth was number what they play is 11. And our 16th hole was a par three on another on the other golf course. So we come off 15. And here's this substitute hole, but it's 235 yards. And I had a top flight. In those days, you could use any kind of ball you wanted. And I had this top flight that I could 235 with me would be a huge three-wood. But I could hit this top flight 230 with a three-iron. Now, my normal ball, a Titleist or a Hogan or a Ben Hogan ball, whatever ball I was using, would go about 190. So it would go an extra 40 yards. Well, I used it on that hole every day, and I never missed the green. I get up on with a one-shot lead, and I knock it about 12 foot in the hole. And if you think I'm trying to make this, you're crazy. All I'm trying to do is get this ball bearing to stop somewhere near the hole, because it's got no feel like the other golf balls, right? So <laughs> I'm so proud of myself with this two putts. So I'm still one ahead, and I get on 17, I drive it just in the, in the intermediate rough on the right, and hit this great shot, but it just catches the right bunker, and I'm facing about a 20-foot bunker shot, but it's just on the top of a ledge. There's a ledge. If I land short, it's going to come back to me. If I land long, it'll go away from me. And I hit it six inches from the top of the ridge, and it took one hop, land, got on top, and just rolled toward the hole, and I had a tap in. Oh. So now, now I've, I've gotten rid of two really hard holes, and now I've got this ridiculous hole But if I, if I could drive the ball, let's say I'd love to have Rory's. Okay, Rory, here's my ball. Hit one for me. <laughs> it would be, you know, a hundred yards past where I would be. So I hit three wood and then my caddy gives me the joyful news that I've got about two twenty. And the water's protecting the left. I'm going, Well, I gotta lay up, there's no option. So I don't remember what I hit, I hit a four iron or something and I had I had just under sixty yards, which was closer than I wanted, but it was you know and I hit this shot, ended up fifteen foot in the hole, slightly left of it. But I you know, I was now I had a putt to win. And Again, who who are the two guys that if I miss, it's Floyd in January. Yeah, two guys I do not want to play off against, right? Yeah. And Mike Rose, my caddy from from Ohio, I told him I said, and I could hear these people running through the leaves and in the in the trees getting to the playoff hole. And I said, boy, they're wasting a lot of time because this sucker's going in the hole. And by watching the film of it, I was the last to putt. And i I looked at it. I knew it was an inside right putt. From the time I I put the I pulled put the ball down, picked the coin up, stepped behind it, looked at it briefly. 14 seconds was all it took for me to get this ball underway. And I never saw it go in because three foot in the hole. There's no way this thing was missing because the greens were perfect. <laughs> and I'm I'm facing the crowd to the left, arms raised, and it was it was a hell of a moment. But the reflection on it was. There's got to be, like I said earlier, twenty guys that should have felt like they, they felt like they had to have gotten robbed. And my initial reaction was I just became a Ryder Cup captain because a lot of my friends, Guy Berger, Bobby Nichols, won won the PGA and didn't get in. And by winning the second time I figured it was cemented, I would believe would cemented my chance to be a Ryder Cup captain. And and the reason I say that is when I was the captain of Kew in ninety one there had only been two people in history in all the vast time of the Ryder Cup from the 20s. It, it, there had only been two that hadn't won the PGA, and that is great trivia question because number one one number one is Arnold, and the other is Billy Casper. Every other captain until that point had won the PGA. So wow. it, meant, it meant a lot to me at that point in time. In fact, Watson followed me, and he campaigned really hard to get it, and he deserved to get it. Uh, he followed me, and because he knew he was a little bit behind the eight ball because he hadn't won it, and uh, it was. But it was it was a great feeling because I it was it was quite a week. And then of course we get we get in, and I do the interviews, and I go in the lo- and they they stop. Uh, sorry, we got to stop. The president is calling, Mr. Stockton. So I go in the men's locker room, and I get on the phone with the president. He says, where's Kathy? I said, she's outside. I'm in the men's locker room. He said, have somebody get her. So now my wife becomes the first wife to get in the men's locker room, and we're sitting there both talking to President, President Ford. And it was quite a deal. We finished up, and about 8 o'clock I called to see if they were still at the American Airlines outing, which was about eight minutes away, and they said, yeah. I said, I'll be right there with the trophy. So I show up, and we kept going till midnight. I had the trophy telling stories the whole nine yards. And they paid me my full, full fee, I, and I didn't expect that, but it was fun to share it with them.
0: Oh, that is so awesome. Can I ask you, what, why, how and why did you have such a close relationship with the President of the United States then?
1: Uh, I got a call from Mongola up at Sutton, Pleasant Valley, and uh, they asked me if I would mind playing with the Vice President of the United States. And I said, absolutely, I'd be glad and be my honor. So, I got had to be, you know, checked out by the Secret Service. I passed, my caddy didn't. I had to use a different caddy that day. Uh, <laughs> but it was, you know. So we get up there and we play, and he'd flown all night from somewhere to get there. And he, these people would stand in front. Of, he took out three people, and they Ooh. they stand there like they think he's never going to miss a shot. And he played really well for about twelve holes. Until he got tired. The other the other thing that's humorous about this day is that our another partner in our team is Tip O'Neill. And I look at some of the idiotic things going now because I just wish we were all independent so there'd be no fighting back and forth. But the pres the vice president and Tip O'Neill, because he became president less than two weeks later and he uh they were talking about exactly what they wanted to get done. Now they're complete opposite sides of the spectrum. Yeah. There was you know, they just carried on. It was, it was unbelievable, and it culminated by us going to the cocktail party and having the di- dinner there on the Wednesday night. And Tip gets up to give the speech, and I see Vice President slumping down in his chair a little bit, and Tip gave the greatest speech, which I've done a couple of times when I've followed a long-winded guy. And he said, I'm standing up here so you can see me. I'm talking <laughs> so you can hear me, and I'll sit down now so you'll appreciate me. <laughs> it was classic. President Fort, Vice President Ford thought that was the greatest thing he'd ever heard. but it's oh, he, brilliant! The camaraderie, and then of course it was that led to all sorts of stuff. He'd he'd always come out here. He had a the Thunderbird. He had a home and stuff, and getting ready for the Bob Hope of the tournaments. He'd call me down. We'd go down and play. And I can remember one day that he said, hey, "Get down there." I just thought it was he and I. Well, it turns out Bob Hope and a friend of his from Kansas City. And we get, we're practicing, we go to the first tee, and Bob Hope turns to the president and says, let's, let's take them on, Mr. President, we can handle them." Well, I'm looking at this tw- 8 handicap or something, Kansas City, that can't breathe. I mean, we got a guy with an Uzi in front of us, we got two cars behind us, you know, nobody's going to attack anybody at Thunderbird, but they were, you know, they were prepared, right? And <laughs> <laughs> I shot 32 on the front side and we were dead even. I mean... 'Cause Ford Ford's gonna make a couple of mistakes but he's gonna make a lot of pars and and Bob Hall partly missed a shot. You know, he didn't hit it very far, but he you know, got along. So we press on the backside, all even. I shot thirty one on the backside and I, and so I shoot sixty three and we beat him one down. The guy from Kansas City never helped a shot, right? Oh, back we get back to President Ford's house, and he's got all this memorabilia. And I'm just—I've never been to the house before, so I'm looking through the stuff. And I happen to look at this gavel. He said, that's kind of a neat deal. And he tells me this is—and said to—this is presented to, you know, Vice President Ford for presiding over the Senate, such and such, and all this. He said that's pretty cool, isn't it? I said, I said, yes, it sure is. He said, well, you know, I'm not going to pay you. I said, yeah, I figured. That's okay. And he says, you take the gavel.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So I'm I'm looking wow. at him now, up in the trophy case. How know? cool
0: is that? Memento of a president no, of the United States. I know.
1: And I I just buried him. It had to be a good time of the in SC football. We kept playing against Michigan, and he kept betting on Michigan, and we kept burying him. And I got more White House stuff from from betting on different stuff against Michigan with him. And it was just it it was it was it was a very nice relationship. We. Uh, both ways. I enjoyed his competitiveness. He's a very serious competitor, but he really cared about the people. I mean, he uh, got two letters on the wall here that he wrote to me. One when he made the hole in one at the Danny Thomas in '77, uh, wow. which was the same year I got the privilege of getting beat by 18 shots by Guyberger when I scored for his '59. I, th- I thought between Guyberger shooting '59 and President Ford making a hole-in-one, the universe wasn't in alignment that week or something. I don't know. But uh, he, he it, it, was, it was a hoot. He wrote me a letter about that, and then he wrote me a really interesting letter after he pardoned Nixon. And he explained, he said, I, I probably, this will probably cost me the next election, but I had to get the country behind this, you know, behind, let this get behind us. And uh, a very thoughtful man. And it just, you know, I... I I have a different view of our system just because of that day of spending it with Tip O'Neill, the leader of the Democrats, and and soon to be President Ford. I mean, it was it was to me it was it was just a eye opening thing on how we should act and the civility we should have between each other, which is definitely not in vogue now.
0: Yeah, I mean. When you think about the, the impact that he had in American history, any president obviously has a dramatic impact in American history, but he was also a member of the Warren Commission on top. I mean, if you look at the, the full breadth and width of his political career, uh, the impact that it had and the fact that he was conscious of the fact that he wanted to bring, heal the country after Watergate and after Nixon left office, it's it's remarkable that this man uh, was, was a friend of yours. And so... I don't wanna take I don't wanna hold you too long here, my friend, because this is fascinating stuff and this is the first time in all the years that we've had conversations that we've gotten this deep into the conversations of these two majors. I'm kinda of wondering if you're cool with it. I think I'd love to wait on the Ryder Cup and what you have done with your career in the last two plus decades and save that for another time and pick that up as another chapter in our conversation. Is that okay with you?
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, no that's that's fine and you can you can call any anytime my my uh, quarantine schedule is wide open at the moment. I go out <laughs> hours they're in a tree within four hundred yards of my house in anybody's yard that hasn't been pruned, so I think the neighbors think I'm an idiot but i'm I'm bound to determine i'm going to rescue this part of the country.
0: All right, my friend. Well, be safe. Thank you for the time that you gave us. It was absolutely fascinating, Dave Stockton. DaveStockton.com, if you guys want to check out anything that he and his sons are doing, uh, hopefully when we get on the other side of this stuff, everything will return to normal and be uh, charging down the road again. But until then, again, please be safe and wishing you and your family the very, very best and cannot wait to pick up our conversation for, for more fun and more details about a remarkable and legendary career.
1: Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Always good to talk to you.